I debated whether to put that song in the be- at the beginning of our sermon or at the end, and uh, I uh, wrestled with that, but I thought, you know, it's good to have that focus as we look into this very grim topic of judgment, mm-hmm. is to remember that by God's grace, we are part of that Emmanuel's land. So we can keep that as we look into this, uh, what's to come, the judgment that is to come in Revelation chapter 9. I want to thank you for your prayers on my behalf as I go into the surgery tomorrow morning, God willing. And uh, it is uh, no small peace to know that you have the people of God praying for you. Come what may, we're in the Lord's hands. So thank you, brothers and sisters, for your prayers. And uh, he does hear and answer them, for sure. One of the most tragic stories in all of Scripture is the story of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that we read about in Exodus chapter 3 through 14. You know the story. The Israelites had been living in the land of Egypt for 400 plus years. During that time, they had prospered and increased greatly and grew, as it said, the scripture, exceedingly strong to the point that king, the king of Egypt was afraid that they would revolt and take over the land. So they began to oppress them and treat them like slaves. The Lord heard the cry of his people in Israel, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham to bring his people out of Egypt into the promised land. So God sent Moses and Pharaoh to, uh, I'm sorry, Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, uh, telling him to let his people go that they may worship him. Pharaoh's initial response was, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. That was his response. Pharaoh thought that the gods of the Egyptians are superior to the God of the Israelites, to Yahweh. After all, Egypt was one of the superpowers of the day. It would be on equivalent to what we would have today, China or Russia or the United States. It was that powerful. So if my gods have brought me to this point and made me to be this superpower, who are you, Israelites, who are our slaves, to think that your God is greater than the God of the Egyptians? Well, Pharaoh was going to find out the hard way that his gods are no match for Yahweh. In fact, his gods never even showed up. Every one of their gods was destroyed and shown to be absolutely impotent, helpless, powerless against Yahweh. And God devastated the land with plague after plague. And each of those plagues, if you study it, is a representation 
it has to do something with the God of the Egyptians, the God of the Nile, the God of fertility, the God of the sun, every one of those, the Lord struck and destroyed completely. How did Pharaoh respond to his, uh, to his gods and his kingdom being demolished before his very eyes? What was his response? Five times we read, he hardened his heart and would not let the people go until, until he and his army came to complete destruction. This verse of Proverbs 29.1 is ex- extremely fitting and demonstrates the truth about Pharaoh. Proverbs 29.1 says this, He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. And brethren, what we're about to read today in the passage before us is exactly just that is people who are going to experience the wrath of God once, twice, three times, four, six major devastations that God is going to be bringing into people's lives. And what happens at the end? Exactly what we see happened with Pharaoh. Their hearts are going to be hardened. And they will not repent of their arrogance, of their, of their pride, of their sinfulness, of their lying and deception, and all those things of their idolatry, they will not repent. People will take advantage of God's long-suffering and patience, thinking it is going to continue indefinitely. But what we will find out today, and in subsequent message, there is a limit to God's long-suffering. There is a limit. Yes, patience, long-suffering is one of God's attributes. But it is not an eternal attribute because it has a limit. Justice also is God's attribute. Therefore, sin must be punished. So if you're here today or listening online and have not as of yet repented uh, and put your trust in Christ, I am glad you're here because this message had specific application for you. And the message for us believers is to see the glory of our Savior who died, who, uh, who gave us life uh, to deliver us from these and future judgments and to help us keep an eternal perspective on life. So that's the message I want us to take away from this passage is to recognize what God has done for us in Christ and what he has spared us of as we will see this tremendous uh, uh, devastation and torment and death that will be taking place with the fifth and sixth trumpet. And yet it says that we will be spared. We will be spared. Just a brief review before we look at our passage Uh, We saw last time that uh, as Christ opened the seventh seal, it set in motion the blowing of the first of seven trumpets. 
the fifth, uh, the first four trumpets we looked at in chapter 8 were directly aimed at the created world, the dry ground, the seas, the streams and rivers, and finally the celestial bodies, uh, the sun, the moon, and the stars. These fifth and sixth trumpets, however, will be directed at unrepented sinners. John only used six verses to describe the first four plagues. And he uses three times as many verses to describe the fifth and the sixth plague. Just to show and to emphasize their severity. So let's read verses 1 to 6 of chapter 9 of Revelation. 1 to 6. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from, from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth, or any green plant, or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Let's ask the Lord's help. Father, we come, Lord, uh, recognizing this is a very sobering passage as we consider the judgments that will be coming upon the earth, uh, the future judgments. We know you've given this word, Lord, for your people, for your church, Lord, that we would take heed that we would be prepared, and that we would be, Lord, uh, by your grace, that we may be faithful to you in those times to come, should we be alive then. But nonetheless, Lord, there is a word of application for us even today. Help us to draw that word and to, make, to find application for our lives. And those who are here, Lord, outside of Christ, by your mercy and grace, that you would save them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is there anyone here, I, I should have asked earlier, who needed translation? I don't see any of our brethren who are. So, Brother Hinton, I think you're free to come out. So we read, and the, and the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. The star in chapter 8, verse 10 that we read about that fell from the sky was a mass of molten material, while this star represents a person as he receives the keys to the abyss. A couple of different views on whether this is a fallen angel or a heavenly angel uh, who has the res responsibility over the bottomless pit, as we read about in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, 
where we read that we see there an angel coming down from heaven with a key of the bottomless pit and a chain to bind Satan and to throw him into the pit. Those who hold to this position, myself included, see that the word fallen from heaven to mean descending from heaven as opposed to being cast out of heaven as Satan was cast out. But the main focus of this vision, brethren, is not the angel. So let's not get, get caught up over that. It is, it is, however, the destruction that will follow once the angel opens the pit. The angel was given the key. He was given the key. The key is a reference to access to the bottomless pit, which is under the control of Jesus Christ, who rules over all principalities and powers. We read in Revelation 1.18, he says, I died and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. When he gave the great commission to the apostles, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Satan, brethren, cannot stop the advancement of the gospel. Therefore, we can go forth with confidence. Neither can Satan touch any of God's elect unless the Lord Jesus gives him permission to do so. This ought to comfort you, dear Christian, because nothing can happen to you outside of his will. And he loves you with an everlasting love. He has gone to heaven to prepare a place for you. And he's coming back to, uh, to bring you to himself. Keep that in mind as you go through your daily struggles here on earth. He has the key of power. He rules over Satan. Satan is powerless unless given permission by the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. The word for the bottomless pit, translated in other versions as the abyss, which is a transliteration from the Greek abusos, which means a pit with immeasurable death. Now, we just happen to have a Greek scholar here in our midst, so if I mispronounce something, Brother Allen, forgive me. Uh, but nonetheless, it is uh, a pit with immeasurable strength. It's mentioned about nine times in the New Testament, and seven of those occur in the book of Revelation. It is a place of torment for imprisoned spirits that are awaiting condemnation. Uh, they are now in the abyss and uh, at the final judgment, it says that they will be cast into the lake of fire. Angel and uh, uh, Satan and his angels and unrepented sinners will be cast into the lake of fire. Now, just on the, as a, uh, on the side, if you would like to Learn more about these spirits in prison. You can look at 1 Peter 3.19, Jude 1.6, and 2 Peter 2.4. I preached on this when I preached through, through 1 Peter. Once he opens the bottomless pit, we read in verse 2, He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from 
the shaft. The idea portrayed here is that this is a deep shaft below the surface of the earth that goes down through the crust and mantle down into the core of the earth. The the smoke-like great furnace is an inference to the account of judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah and God's presence on Mount Sinai. The darkening of the sun is a common feature in the Old Testament prophecies regarding the day of the Lord. And you see that in Joel 2.10, Amos 5.18. Hendrickson says that this smoke is a representation of the widespread deception and delusion of sin and sorrow and moral darkness that will prevail during that time as, as demonic powers from the abyss will be released for a period to torment humans. The smoke brought with with its swarm of locusts. But these are not ordinary locusts uh, that destroy crops, but demonic forces that torment humans. Look with me at verses 3 to 6. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. They, all, they, they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. This imagery of destroying locusts is drawn from uh, two references in the Old Testament, the eighth plague in Exodus 10, and Joel 1 and 2 that describes the day of the Lord as a day of darkness and gloom, an invading army that will desolate the land like a swarm of locusts. We're told that locusts, when they invade a cultivated area in search of food, they can travel in a column of 100 feet deep and 4 miles in length. 100 feet deep, 4 miles in length, they will strip the land bare of all vegetation. These locusts, however, were equipped with scorpion-like power to inflict excruciating pain on humans. They were given specific instructions that they were not to harm vegetation, but only individuals who don't have the seal of God on their forehead. In a similar way that God protected the Israelites from this, uh, some of the plagues in Egypt. In these last days, God will be protecting His people from any punishment for sin and rebellion because the wrath, uh, the, the wrath for our sins has been absorbed by Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And if you're not in Christ, this is what you have to look forward to, is what we're going to hear about these tormenting locusts. Verses 7 to 10, John describes for us the horrific appearance of these creatures. Look with me there. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their their hair like women's hair. And their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. 
John, John describes this, this bizarre, horrifying-looking creature to give us a sense of their diabolical nature and mission. He uses the word like seven times as he describes them. They looked like long-haired, horse-shaped, flying locusts with a scorpion tail and a human face and lion's feet, and they seem to have a golden crown on their heads. And the noise of their wings is like the noise of many horses, drawn chariots, rushing into battle. Scary. He's trying to convey the incredible, this incredible vision to the best of his ability. That's why he says, like this, like this, like, like, like. A demonic creature that can run like a horse, think like a human, fly like a locust, and sting like a scorpion. So what do these locusts represent? Right? That's the idea. We know this is figurative language, and there is symbolic, and the question is, what do they represent? Well, they're obviously nothing like the insects, locusts, that we are familiar with. So what are they? Are they helicopter gunships spraying Agent Orange from their tails, as was thought of back in the 70s? I heard a pastor who thought that they were drone, drones, you know, because they are closer to, to grasshoppers, like a large grasshopper, maybe. While others thought they were a plague of false teachers who would sort of invade the church. Not sure why, where they came up with that, since they're only supposed to harm those who don't have the seal of God upon them. Or are they, this is one of the uh, commentators, Henry Morris says this, Demonic spirits long confined in the pit of the abyss, but now released for a little season, perhaps so men would understand the fearful consequence of the choice they were making by continuing to reject God's great salvation and persisting in their hatred of God and choosing Satan instead. And so God would allow them to experience a little direct fellowship with their future co-inhabitants in the lake of fire. That was a mouthful. What he's saying is that these are... Uh, well, let, let, me, let me just continue, and I think you'll get the point. We have an illustration of this in, in Mark chapter 9. Turn with me there, would you, for a moment? Not, uh, Mark chapter 9. It is the story of a boy who was tormented by evil spirits, and the father brought him to Jesus and his disciples for healing. And so we're going to pick up the reading from verse 17. Mark 9, verse 17. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Verse 20, And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and called out, uh, call, uh, rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this 
been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast, cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. This poor boy was daily afflicted by demons who were causing him serious pain and suffering. Can you imagine the anguish of this poor dad, this father, seeing his son tormented like this since he was a small boy and he was completely helpless, unable to do anything for his son? Similarly, these unbelievers would be tormented for five months. Now, whatever, whatever, um, whether we take the five months to be literal or figurative, the point implied is here is that it wasn't minutes, it wasn't hours, it wasn't days, it wasn't weeks, it was months. It was months. This torment is going to be for a, a period, a time of affliction. The suffering these demons will inflict is going to be so severe and so dreadful that people will, will choose death over the pain. But death will escape them. They will not be able to even commit suicide. We read in verse 6, And in those days people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Death will flee from them. However that works out, they will be kept from ending their lives. They falsely thought, and uh, they had this false hope that dying will relieve their suffering, not knowing that hell was awaiting them. And those evil creatures will be there too. So there's no escape. They thought they could escape if they take their lives, but it's only going to get worse. Friend, today you can live in rebellion against God and laugh and joke at sin and enjoy it, but there will be no laughing then. There will be no joking then. You will not be thinking about amusing yourself with entertainment. What's the funniest joke? And Nor will you be thinking about your vacation or your house or your kids or your 401k but simply wanting to die because of the torment. You won't be wanting to go to a horror movie for a thrill because you'll be living it. And you will wish it was just a movie and you'll come out and everything is left behind. Or just a bad dream. Oh, you wake up in the morning and recognize that monster that was chasing you was just a dream. And you're so glad it was just a dream. Well, this is not a dream. You cannot get away from it. And those who are dabbling with the occult and new age spiritism and animism will get to experience firsthand what it means to be indwelt by Satan. But friend, let me say this. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Today is a day of salvation. You're saying, are you, pastor, are you trying to scare me into believing? 
No, I'm just simply telling you the truth. This is God's word. I'm not making this up. This is not a Hollywood flick. This is truth of God's word. This is no joke. So believe on Christ today before it is too late because what we will see, what we will see happen is extremely scary because you think that, man, if this is going to happen to me, I want out. I want out. Tell me what's the way out. I'm telling you what's the way out because once you're in it, you're not going to be able to get out because as we will find in verses 20 and 21, you become hardened in your sin. So today is the day of salvation. John then goes on to tell us about their king in verse 11. It says they have as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. In Proverbs 30, verse 27, we're told that the locusts have no king, and yet they are all marching in ranks. These locusts, however, have a king. And his name is given to us both in Hebrew and Greek. And the one, it means destruction, and the other, it means destroyer. It seems that he too comes from the bottomless pit, so we are not to confuse him with Satan, who is currently roaming the earth, going about seeking to deceive humanity. This Abaddon, or Apollyon, is the prince of the underworld, and he is like Satan, is a fallen angel who is bent on destruction. And these locusts are his subjects. They're his subjects. In verse 12, John transitioned us from the first to the second woe, uh, from the fifth to the sixth trumpet. Look with me at verse 12. We're just trying to keep this moving so that we can come to some points of application. The first woe has passed before, behold, two woes are still to come. Each woe will, uh, will get successively worse. In the fifth woe, people were tormented but didn't die. In the second woe, a third of the people will die. And in the last woe, God's wrath will be poured out in full measure and no one will survive. We see God's mercy and patience giving every opportunity for sinners to repent and be saved. One would have thought that the fifth woe would have been sufficient to bring people to their needs and repentance. And there would be no need for a sixth or seventh woe. But sadly, this is not the case. With each woe, the people become progressively harder and harder just like Pharaoh. Let's look at verses 13 to 19 for the second woe and the sixth trumpet. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the, river, at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the for, uh, for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a, a third of mankind. 
The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. This voice comes from divine, with divine authority from the very presence of God, from the throne room of heaven, telling the sixth angel to release the four angels that are bound at the river Euphrates. Here again, there's a debate as to uh, whether the, these four angels are evil angels who have been bound and are now being released, or whether these are holy angels who have been prepared for this time and hour in the same way the four angels in in chapter 7, verse 1 to 3, who were restraining the four winds of the earth and then were told to hold them back from destruction. Uh, I take the latter position and agree with uh, Bust, Fanning, that uh, the word bound here is to be understood as held back from their task until the time that God has appointed. Uh, there's an additional detail that we're told here that these are angels were bound at the Euphrates River. Uh, the Euphrates was, the, uh, uh, was to the north of Israel, the boundary of Mesopotamia, where Babylon and Assyria, uh, uh, the invading armies of Babylon and Assyria would be coming from. Uh, And God used these as instruments of judgment against his people. It was also the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire where much feared Parthian warriors would come from. Their mission was to kill a third of the unbelieving human population, which would be in in the billions. Um, But again, sparing others... uh, to give them a chance to repent. The number of this demonic cavalry cal- uh, uh, is twice 10,000 times 10,000. In other words, John is telling us that it is a staggering number, double myriad of myriads. Uh, they spread out as far as the eye can see, so no one can escape their onslaught. John then gives us a a detailed description of their appearance and their dreadful power to kill humans. Look with me at verse 17. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with with heads, and by means of them they wound. The horses that John saw in this vision had heads that looked like lions' heads and tails that looked like serpents' heads that can bite and wound. These horses seemed like mythical dragons. Uh, They had the power to breathe out fire, smoke, and sulfur. Uh, The color of the breastplate of the riders matched the color of the three plagues that came out of the mouth of the horses. Fiery red, sapphire blue, and sulfur yellow. Their lion-like heads suggested they are ferocious. They will attack and kill their prey. The fire, smoke, and sulfur are a reference to the account of judgment on Sodom 
and Gomorrah. So what do these horses represent? Some in the past have thought, uh, suggested that they are tanks, uh, cannons and battleships and other types of weaponry that produces fire and smoke and sulfur like atomic or napalm bombs. Others suggested the eruption of Mount uh, Vesuvius in AD 79 AD, while others suggested a fierce human army. Henry, Mo- Henry uh, Morris suggests that these are actual animals created by God specifically for this time of judgment that are indwelt by evil spirits that have come out of the pit and they have the ability to kill with the breath of their mouth. Here again, I would agree with Fanning that like the locust plague, these are demonic forces unleashed against sinful humanity in the final days of tribulation. But however you see them, however you see them, their effect is still the same. They will be set loose to kill a large segment of humanity that is in rebellion against God. I think we can all agree on that. Let's now look to see what effect these six trumpets had on unbelieving world. By now, those who have survived have seen hail mixed with fire fall on the earth and scorch a third of the trees, green and grass, uh, green grass and vegetation. They have seen a massive burning rock. This was the first trumpet. A massive burning rock fall into the sea, turning some of, uh, some of it into blood and killing the fish and destroying some ships. Thirdly, they have seen a large burning object hurled into the streams and rivers, making a third of them undrinkable. Fourthly, they have seen the light of the sun and stars reduced by, their, by a third of their power. Fifthly, they have seen... Uh, They have been tormented by demonic spirits for five months to the point that they wanted so badly to die and couldn't. And then here finally, they have been assaulted by demonic, demonic forces that have killed people all around them. Surely, you would say surely, surely they are now ready to repent, right? I mean, how much more can you endure? If this doesn't bring you to your knees, what will? What else can deliver you in times like these? You surely can see this is God's judgment. There's no question about it. Is that what happened? Let's look at verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping the demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. I think these are the saddest words in all of Scripture. They continued in rebellion against God. Well, this is obviously, you have to be possessed, as we will see. They have to be possessed to continue because, uh, you know, sin is insanity. 
No, no logical human reasoning person is going to remain in their stubbornness and continue unless you're, you're unless you are, uh, uh, what's the word, that you're just a sadist or whatever the word is, you love masochist, thank you, Rob. You love, you know, self-affliction. How is this possible? These survivors have become more hardened against God than ever. As one commentator put it, they have now become open Satanists, worshiping demons. He said, no longer will there be atheists or humanists who deny the existence of God and his holy angels because they have seen his mighty judgments and yet choose to worship Satan instead. The first thing that John highlights for us is what these people worship. What these people worship. And then, which leads to their way of life. Ethics comes out of what you worship. What you worship is what you are. How you live your life is traced back to what you worship. So first of all, he tells us what they worship. What did they worship? He tells us they're worshiping dumb idols that can't see or hear or walk as opposed to the living God who sees, speaks, and hears and has walked among us. What kind of lifestyle did that produce in them? He tells us murder, sorcery, sorcery, sexual immorality, and theft. You can be certain that to depart from worshiping the true and living God will ultimately lead to false worship and moral decadence. You can see this progression in Romans chapter 1. Feel free to turn there if you wish, but Romans chapter 1 verse 18 tells us, to those who reject the knowledge of God and they are given over to debased minds to do those things that are against nature. Well, it tells us. It's even worse, I think, as you read this account than what we read in Revelation, what John gave us. John just gave us a, a smithering of, of what they uh, are holding on to, the sin, their rebellion. Well, this even tells us more. Verse 28 of chapter 1 of Romans. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You know, as I'm preparing this sermon, it's just been heavy all week. I'm just telling my wife, I don't know how I could preach this. It is so heavy. It's a heavy, heavy sermon. How do we get to this point? How does mankind get to this point? And is this not what we see, brothers and sisters, in the West in general? Our society in particular, where people have rejected God wholesale and turned to believing lies instead? Let's take the lie of evolutionary humanism, for example. 
where it is believed that humans and the universe evolved from some chemical reactions, random mutations and natural selection uh, by time and chance, rather than God as a creator. What are some of the consequences of this lie in our society? If God doesn't exist, then you have self-autonomy. You can do anything you want. You're your own God. Just like in virtual reality uh, world and the metaverse, you can recreate yourself to be anything you want. You can create your own world and immerse yourself in it. You choose your own gender. You you can decide whether you want to marry same sex or opposite sex. And as far as life is concerned, killing another human being is no big deal. We're just a product of chemical reactions uh, and just a bunch of cells anyway. So why, why shouldn't women have the right to kill their baby in the womb? Why, why shouldn't a guy walk into a, a mall or a school or a crowd and begin shooting up other people if that is what he thinks he wants to do? Bunch of cells and chemical reaction. That's all we are. That's it. And when you reject God as creator, life giver, and judge, you will reject any authority structure that he has placed in society for the good of man. So the authority structure in the home, school, government, and church is considered to be today just a social construct. This is just, you know, you can take it or leave it. This is man came up with this. This is not God. There's no God. This is just humanity's way of uh, finding a way to control other people, whether in the church, the home, and so on. Do we wonder why there's a breakdown in law and order in our cities where we are seeing an increase in crime and anarchy? Though uh, one report I was looking at by the Council uh, on Criminal Justice that compares this year with uh, the last year in, 30, uh, in 37 different cities that showed homicides and burglaries are lower. The word on the street is that it is still not safe for people to be on the street and that people are leaving the cities. So whatever this report says, it doesn't quite match up with what is happening. And the effect of removing the authority of, and structure in the home and society, what is, what's the effect of that? Well, kids nowadays have little or no respect for any authority in their lives. I don't have to tell you this, just look around you. Look at your neighbors. Look in the, when you go to the grocery store. Just ask the teacher, ask the public school teacher, ask them. How do kids behave in this classroom? Do they have respect towards authority? I know for a fact, from what we observe, our neighbor children, you know, they call their parents' names, they yell at their parents. That's just how it is, because there is no authority structure. And marriages are breaking up, if they're happening at all. So just remove the authority structure and society that God had placed there. What do you have? Anarchy, chaos. You recall what happened in the book of Judges when Joshua's generation died off and a generation rose up that did not know the Lord? What does it say? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds familiar? Your truth is your truth. Truth is relative. 
You have to affirm me in my sin, in my truth. If this is what I believe about me, about the world, you have to affirm me. You have to accept me. Because my truth is just as valid as your truth. Every man doing what's right in their own eyes. Another sin that is the result of rejecting the true and the living God is what John calls sorcery. Sorcery. The word sorcery is the Greek uh, is uh, pharmakon, which comes from uh, pharmakos, where we get the word pharmacy, from which we can also, uh, which can also be translated as witchcraft or magic arts, which are generally associated with animism and the use of potions and spells to gain power over spirits or humans. This uh, human deception and false worship will have its culmination in the end times as people will be worshiping the dragon, Satan, and the image of the beast. Many people have already begun that transition of worshiping demons uh, as they have turned to Eastern and New Age philosophies. We also see an increase in the use of uh, epioids and marijuana that can cause hallucination and allow your mind to be influenced by Satan. More and more you see that today. So the transition, brothers and sisters, is already happening. Even in our day we see it, right? People opening themselves up to being controlled and influenced by Satan. And that's exactly what is happening in these passages. But we know also that, brethren, that idolatry is not just worshipping graven images and false religions, but making an idol of anything that would take the place of God in your lives. That could be ourselves, worshipping ourselves, worshipping our kids, worshipping our spouse, sports stars, entertainers, careers, hobbies, and so on. Anything that will keep you from worshipping the true and the living God. So people would say, well, I'm not a Satan worshipper. I don't do drugs. I don't partake in all those things. I don't kill nobody. You know, I'm a decent... Well, what are you worshiping, friend? Are you worshiping the true and the living God? What is your worship? And so there's no... Just because you're not an animist and you don't worship these your ancestral worship and open yourself up to demons, you're still not worshiping the true and the living God. Unless you're bowed down to King Jesus... You're worshiping an idol. Whatever that may be. It could be your work, your career, your whatever. Your, all of those things that I, I called out. So friend, what are you worshiping? Are you worshiping the true God or falsehood? That's the question. And what happens to those who practice such sins? It tells us in Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and and sulfur, which is the second death. So you you may not be at the time when these things happen that we're reading about, but what awaits you after death, because we all have to die, is this is this, but magnified, magnified, infinitely magnified in a place called hell, the lake of fire. So friend, escape that wrath. Come to Jesus. He is the only refuge. And you will be 
delivered. Today is the day of salvation. Let's look at a couple of points of application. We saw last time that knowing how people will be hardened at the end calls us to A, preach the gospel while it is still the day of mercy. B, pray fervently because your prayers are heard in heaven. And then C, live soberly and confidently as you await Christ's return. I have a couple more applications for today. One, uh, for unbelievers, see the amazing patience of God in giving you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent. There were six trumpet warnings before the final judgment came. Why didn't God just end it right then and there? He would have been absolutely just in doing it. That's it. You've had chances. We're done. No, he continues. One, two, three, four, five, six trumpets, warnings. You've had different scares in your life, yet God has spared you to this moment. Don't keep putting off the offer of mercy to repent and receive Christ as your Savior. I know that uh, many of us here are believers in Christ, so these applications, just pray with me that those who may be still here without Christ and others who are listening online, I know for a fact there are others who are listening online, so are watching Pray that God would use that in their lives. As I said earlier, there's a limit to God's patience. One day, you will breathe your last. And that could be tomorrow. None of us are guaranteed another moment, let uh, let alone another day or a month or a year. So today is a day of salvation. If you hear His voice, Speaking to you right now, don't harden your heart. Because you know what? You will only get harder. Just like we saw. Only harder. Only harder. Submit to Christ and receive Him as your Lord and Savior. He left heaven, took on flesh, so that we would die, He would die and give His life as a penalty for our sins. On the third day, He rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and is coming back again to judge the living and the dead. So turn to him today. And beware, second point goes with the first point, beware of this hardening nature of sin. This is, Beware of the enslaving power of sin. Look to Christ today. People today think that life is all about f- having fun. Just live in the moment. Live for the moment, live in the moment. They don't want to trouble their minds with thinking about judgment and preparing to face God when they die. So they put those thoughts out of their minds. Just have positive thoughts about yourself, you know. Your best life now. And demand that others affirm them in their sin. This passage shows us that if you don't deal with your sin now, then it will enslave you. And your condition will be worse at the end. So, the only way to be freed from your sin today is to flee to Jesus Christ. If the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. For us believers, brothers and sisters, behold 
the grace of God. Behold the mercy of God. Christ has delivered you from uh, uh, these judgments. Those who were tormented by the demonic host were those who did not have the seal of God on their forehead. Not one drop of that wrath will fall on you, believer. Because all this woe and suffering magnified by a magnitude of infinity was born on the cross for you and for me by the Lord Jesus Christ. God's billows of wrath were poured on Christ for your sin and mine and not one drop is left for us. And we have been washed by the blood of Christ and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Let us glory in Him. Let us love Him. Let us serve Him till the day we die because He is worthy. Amen. Let's pray. Who's leading us today? Prayer of confession. Brother Lewis, okay. Uh, after Brother Lewis leads us, uh, take a couple minutes uh, to, for silent prayer to prepare your hearts as we will be partaking of the Lord's Supper. And at the end of those few minutes, I'll give instructions about who should come to the table.